Um, Well, let's go ahead and get started. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and bring those out. We are in Matthew chapter 7. And as I was preparing this lecture, uh, I was thinking about the past year and a half that have been just totally crazy, right, for all of us. And I think one of the interesting spots of the pandemic, which is crazy to say, right, because the pandemic was such a difficult and dark time for so many people, but I think the pandemic gave me something that I did not have prior to March 2020, and that was time. Um, When everything was kind of shut down, right, BSF was online, in-person church was just a no-go, our social lives were put on hold, Uh, it really gave us a lot of time to be alone and to think through your thoughts, which for me is a terrifying prospect, because that can be a very scary thing, but it did give us ample time to just think and reflect You could think about the kind of life that you wanted to live, the people that you really wanted to spend time with, the kind of job that you wanted to have. I think that's partly what's going on in our society today, right, where you have this great migration of people moving across the country to these different jobs. It feels like someone's quitting their job every other day, right? So many people are changing careers, moving across the country. It gave us a lot of time to think. And in a similar way, as we've been reading the past few weeks in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has really laid out this foundation of what life should look like in the kingdom of God. And it has given us this time, this opportunity to just reflect and think through things. Think deeply. Think deeply about a truly joyful and satisfying life. A life that brings real glory to our creator. So as we wrap up the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7... We're going to dive into two key fundamentals that are important for living a life that glorifies and magnifies our Savior. And that's when our lives are marked with both humility and truth. And that actually sets up the two divisions for tonight. So Matthew 7, our first division, verses 1 through 12, walking with Jesus grounded in humility. And then the second division, verses 13 through 29, walking with Jesus grounded in truth. Let me pray for us, and then we will dive into God's word. Heavenly Father, uh, we come before you asking you to still our soul, to quiet our hearts, Lord, for whatever kind of Monday or weekend that we just had. Lord, we know that you're going to meet us in this moment. God, I pray that these words would not be mine, but yours. Lord, your word never returns void, so we thank you for that. We thank you for your faithfulness in this moment. It's in your son's precious name that we pray. Amen. All right, so let's dive in. Our first division, Matthew chapter 7, walking with Jesus grounded in humility in verses 1 through 12. So I always like to look back where we've been, right? Jesus has been sharing throughout the Sermon on the Mount what makes up a truly satisfying, God-glorifying life. He's been addressing our motives, what lies beneath the heart. And then this week, he's going to touch on addressing our relationships, the interactions that we have with others. And of course, Jesus is addressing the all-important topic of judgment. Um, so let's start with what Jesus says about judgment. And I think he really breaks it up into two ways. Jesus teaches us how we should really view ourselves honestly, realistically, and then how we should view others when it comes to the topic of judgment. So let's start reading those verses. What does Jesus say about judgment. So starting in verse 1, Jesus says, do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Now most people look at these verses and they stop right there and they say, see, all Jesus was was love. 
It was all love. There was no room for judgment, right? Just live and let live. Well, hold the phone. Let's take a step back. So granted, have Christians through legalism and excessive judgment and feelings of superiority been unloving, right, towards people in the church and outside of the church? Of course, right? Of course. How easy is it for us as humans through sinful pride to cast unfair judgment on others? It is super easy to do. And Jesus would call that out right here and say that that is sinful. But does that mean that we can never call out sin or confront it in someone else's lives? And of course, we know that not to be true. So obviously, this is a multifaceted statement that Jesus is making about judgment. So let's unpack that a little bit more. Let's continue in verse 3. Jesus continues, Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. All right, so Jesus makes it clear right there that we need to start with our own sin first. We need to be realistic about who we are first. We have a realistic view of ourselves. And what is that proper view? So get ready for some doses of truth, right, about what God says about the human heart, the reality of our sin. And I have to preface this by saying that by us being created in the very image and likeness of God, right, we have immeasurable dignity and worth. We have value, transcendent value, because we were created by a loving God in his image. We learn that in Genesis. We read through the Psalms, through Jeremiah 1, right, that God knew us in our mother's womb. He actually knew us before the creation of the world, as Ephesians 1.4 says. So we have dignity, we have value, we have worth, and it comes from God. But at our core is also a sinful nature. And we don't just mess up every once in a while. The Bible says, also in Jeremiah, that our heart is deceitfully wicked above all else. You cannot trust it. And yes, we are saved by the blood of Christ, right? If we are Christ followers, we have been given a new nature, a new heart. But the reality is that even after we're saved, we still struggle with sin. Remember from Romans 7 when Paul is writing about his struggle with the sinful nature, right? He says, for what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. I know that nothing good lives in me that is my sinful nature. And that is a harsh truth, right? It's a harsh reality that humbles us. We are flawed people and we need saving. Even after we are saved, we still sin. And it can confuse us at times, right? Because it feels like we're still struggling with some of those same sins and temptations even years after we have been saved. That's the reality of our sinful nature on this side of heaven, the wrestling that we have before heaven. But having a right view of ourselves makes us realize that we cannot have any moral superiority over anyone. No one. We don't have that right. And how easy is that to do? You know, I brought that up in my my last lecture, but social media, right, dominates many of the interactions that we have with others. How easy it is to cast judgment on someone on social media when we don't even know them, right? Or how about in that terrible cycle of comparison when we need a little bit of an ego boost, We'll just think about the person who can't quite get, or family member that can't quite get their life together, and we feel better about ourselves. I hate to admit it, but I am totally guilty of that. And these words from Jesus completely shatter that perspective. He reminds us of the sin in our own hearts, and this harkens us back to the gospel, that we are saved sinners that have been rescued by Christ's death, 
and resurrection, and it was nothing that we did. It's not our righteousness. It is his righteousness. You know, our notes mentioned it this week too. We are often quick to notice the sins in other people's lives when in reality we might not realize that we're actually struggling with that same sin that irritates us about others. It's funny because we are blinded sometimes by our own sin. And it doesn't mean that we turn a blind eye to sin in other people's lives. Just in that verse, read those verses again. Jesus says, take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. So of course, there's a place for confronting sin in someone else's life. Uh, later in the New Testament, we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul actually lays out instructions on how to deal with sin in the church. Later in this very chapter, Jesus is going to map out what it looks like to discern good and bad teaching, true and false followers of Christ. So there is a place to understand good between evil. But what this means for us as believers is that a right view of ourselves reminds us to wrestle with the sin in our own hearts first. And in turn, when we do need to confront the sin in someone else, when necessary, we can do so in a spirit of gentleness and restoration. Actually, our lesson, you probably discussed it tonight in Galatians 6, verses 1 through 5, Paul has this beautiful discussion of what it means to bear each other's burden and to actually rightly through gentleness address someone else's sin. We should be a community of faith that strives to point people back to the work of Christ, both for believers and unbelievers, right? Understanding that before we want others to change, God wants to deal with us first. He wants to deal with our hearts first. We also don't have the authority to condemn. One of the leaders during our leaders meeting on Friday night had this great line, and he said that the reality is that there is a judge, and that judge is not us. And I thought that was an awesome line. Because there will be a day where God does judge sin rightly. But if we are alive and breathing today, that day has not come yet. There is still time for anyone to come to God and to find life in Jesus. As the believer, that should always be our disposition to point people back to Jesus. But then we get a verse like verse 6. Um, And we had to wrestle with this as a leadership circle on Friday, because for me, this verse kind of pops out of nowhere, right? Jesus says in verse six, do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Okay, what is going on in these verses? I was like, where did this come from? But as we talked about it in our discussion, and you probably wrestled with it in your group as well, uh, I think the general consensus that we came to was that Jesus is calling us to discernment here. And he does that a little bit more fully through the rest of this chapter. But while it is good to build relational uh, bridges with other people, right? In Galatians 6, Paul maps that out, how to do that with others, to address and confront sin when necessary before, uh, after addressing the sin in our own hearts. While it's good to do that, the reality is some people just won't have it. They will, they will refuse any help or confrontation that you provide. That's just the reality. And sometimes it's okay to walk away. We don't need to force something that isn't there. We're actually going to read later in Matthew, in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus tells his disciples, if, they're in, if you're in a town and that town keeps on rejecting the good news, shake the dust off your feet and move on. That's hard for us, right, sometimes because... As Christians, as believers, we want people to find the truth. We want people to find Jesus. But we cannot force what's not there. 
This is true when you're evangelizing someone. This is true when you're confronting someone that maybe has wandered from the faith or is struggling with sin. And this takes really, really deep wisdom from God. This is not an easy decision to come to, right? This calls for discernment and wisdom um, because our goal should always, again, be restoration and redemption and pointing people to the good news. But the reality is sometimes we just got to take a step back in some of our relationships and just let God be God and let his sovereignty and work work in that, pow- that person's heart. So we now transition, right? We had this first section of Matthew 7 when we, we transitioned to having a right view of ourselves. Jesus is telling us what it looks like to have a proper view of ourselves, having a proper view of others. And now we're looking at having a proper view of God through prayer. You know, in Matthew chapter 6 last week, we talked about the Lord's Prayer, and I think this is a perfect follow-up, right, to that lesson, because we get to analyze and look at Jesus talking about prayer a little deeper. So let's read verses 7 through 11. Jesus says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? For he asks for a fish, will give him a snake. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Again, I love that we are covering prayer, right? We're diving in a little bit deeper to how Jesus maps out prayer for us and our relationship to God. And as we're looking at these verses, I think we have to take a pause and just realize how amazing it is, right, that the God of the universe, the eternal one, the one who has no beginning and no end, who made the cosmos, is telling us to talk to him. And he's telling us that he's going to listen to us. Like, that should be amazing to us right off the bat. He not only wants us to talk to him, he delights when we come to him in prayer. He wants us to do it constantly, persistently, right? Jesus says, ask, seek, knock. These are images for us to come to him continually, persistently, It makes me think of Hebrews chapter four, verse 16, which says, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Don't you love that? With confidence, with boldness, we as believers can approach his throne to seek his goodness, his mercy, his presence. This is a great privilege and grace that we have. And you know, this isn't some prosperity gospel trope, right? Um, I think a lot of people might look at these verses and say, if I just go to God, he's going to give me everything that we want. I've done that too, where I look at these verses and say, come on, God, I've really been praying about this. And you, you said you were going to give me everything we want. But that is, is that really what Jesus is saying here, right? If you look at verses 7 through 11 a little clo- uh, closer, how does Jesus describe his father? As a good father who gives good gifts. Now I think about a good father, I think about the eternal God, and I think about me as a finite being, and I think I know what I want in life. Then we have God, who is our perfect and good father, who is eternal, who made us and knows us better than we know ourselves. There's probably going to be a gap between what I think I want and what he knows I need. He's going to give good gifts, not superficial ones, that don't satisfy or that fade away, the kind of gifts that maybe we want, he's going to give lasting gifts, eternal gifts, gifts that will provide us with what's necessary to follow him, to glorify him. 
And as a leadership circle, again, we were talking about verse 12, um, because one of our leaders mentioned that, you know, this is another verse that kind of comes out of nowhere, right? It feels like um, Jesus kind of wraps up this section um, in an unorganized manner, but actually, um, real quick, what verse 12 says, Jesus says, so in everything do to others what you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. And it might seem like it's maybe out of place here, um, but we talked about it, and it really nicely concludes this portion of scripture. Um, Jesus is reiterating to what he's been talking about throughout the Sermon on, on the Mount, right? He's basically been saying, be like my father. Be a good gift giver like my father. Be perfect like my father. And in this context, he's saying, treat people the way you want to be treated. And it not only sums up this part of scripture, it sums up really a good part of the Sermon on the Mount. Shout out to Vicki Tatko and the Leadership Circle as we were talking about that. We had an amazing breakdown of what, how this verse fits in with this section. I'm sure you all had a wonderful discussion as well. But all of this requires humility, right? Treating others with humility and grace, having a right view of our own sin and what God is doing in our own hearts before we address it in others. It's humility when we realize that we are dependent beings, that we need God every hour of every day. And that part of that dependence is illustrated when we come to him in prayer. It's going to lead to our first principle, which is that living a life that glorifies God requires humble dependence on him. Living a life that glorifies God requires humble dependence on him. So as you've read the Sermon on the Mount in the last four weeks, I hope that you have come to the conclusion how desperately we need Jesus and his righteousness. Um, And having that perspective, right, understanding that we cannot possibly live the life that Jesus calls us to without his strength requires a dose of humility. When I was doing some research on definitions, uh, biblical definitions of humility, I came across this one online and I thought it was really perfect. I loved it. Um, Biblical humility means believing that God, what God says about you over anyone else's opinion, including your own. It requires embracing who you are in Christ over who you are in the flesh. To be biblically humble is to be so free of concern for your own ego that you unreservedly elevate those around you. And I love that definition because it points us back to really both sides of the gospel, right? Um, Part of the gospel, understanding that we are flawed human beings. um, And the other part of the gospel, that we have a new identity, a new foundation in Jesus and in his righteousness. We are secured not in ourselves or in our works, but in him and him alone. And it's that security, that place that we have with Jesus that gives us the ability to address and be honest about our own sin first and then giving us the wisdom to call out the sin in others people's li- other people's lives when appropriate, with the goal being restoration and redemption and not careless and unfair judgment. As we wrap up this section, we have to remember, too, that it is humility that calls us to earnestly pray to him as we depend on his faithfulness and provision. It is the gospel that gives us the humility that we need. And we'll talk a little bit more about that as we conclude, but let's move on for now to our second division, which is living in this world grounded in truth. That's verses 13 through 29, living in this world grounded in truth. So in the last part of tonight's passage, Jesus reinforces that truth matters, right? Um, discernment matters, um, Yes, we are called to not operate with others in this sense of superiority or arrogance, right? Remember, we are sinners too. 
But at the same time, it is a good thing, it is a necessary thing to be able to call out good and bad teaching. False teaching versus proper teaching. Good versus evil. And he starts out with verses 13 and 14. Let's read those together. Jesus, starting um, in verse 13, as, as Jesus is sharing, right, this grim reality of the world that we live in, that wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. Small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life and only a few find it. So grim, but very accurate, I think, of the world around us today. I think all of us would probably agree that truth is in the minority. Those that claim Christ are in the minority and even more so, um, even fewer are those who actually follow Jesus. And that last part, those that actually follow him, those that are legitimate, born-again Christians, Jesus touches on that in verses 21 through 23, right? Jesus looks, through, looks to a future time, a time of judgment, when people at the end of their life are going to come to Jesus and they're going to say, Jesus, look what I did. I prophesied in your name. I performed miracles in your name. I casted out demons in your name. I went to Bible study. I went to church. I gave I did charity on a Saturday. Jesus, I did all of these things. And Jesus is going to say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you evildoers. This is not to say that good works aren't important or good works don't matter. What Jesus is saying is good works do not save. Salvation is not about our righteousness. It does not start with us. It does not start with our behavior. It's what Jesus has been talking about this entire sermon. We need to be made right. We need a new heart. And it's only in repentance and trust in Christ as Savior and Lord that that's going to happen. That will lead us to the narrow gate. And we're going to see that unpacked more fully as we read the Gospel of Matthew. But we as humans, we love to focus on what we do, what we can accomplish. But the reality is, actually the beautiful reality is, the life-giving and freeing reality is that life and true life is not in what we do, but it is, what, it is in what Jesus has already done at the cross and in the resurrection. But as I mentioned, this is not to say that behavior and works have no place in the Christian life, right? Of course they do. Good works and behavior do not save, but a heart that has been made right in Christ will demonstrate the Spirit's transformation in their heart. After we are saved and redeemed, we grow in grace and we begin to live out the life that he has called us to. When we read his word, when we come to places like this, when we spend time alone with him in his presence, Jesus begins to change our hearts, our motives, our attitudes, and we begin to live out the life that Jesus is calling to, the life that glorifies him. And through that, as the Spirit is working through to create those proper motives to change our hearts, he's producing good fruit. And that's what Jesus talks about in verses 15 through 20. Right? Good, it is our fruit, the outworking of our lives. Let's show what's going on in our heart. And it's in this portion of Scripture, too, where Jesus touches on another grim reality about false prophets or false teachers or leaders um, reiterating right the, in the reality, the reality is that in the church, there will be leaders in the church that will try to lead people to, uh, astray, ministry leaders, pastors, teachers. And Jesus is blunt about these people. They are ferocious wolves 
in sheep's clothing. And the warning to us from Jesus is this, to be wise, to be strong in the truth which is found in his word. Take time to know your savior well so that when you hear something or see something that doesn't quite add up to scripture, you can call it out, you can address it, and you can run from it. Jesus wraps up this portion too um, by making a contrast to someone who builds their house, their life on a strong foundation such as a rock, a weak foundation on the sand. We're actually gonna talk about that. That's in my conclusion. I promise we will talk about it. So hold the phone again. I'm using that phrase. That's the second time I've used that phrase. I never even say that phrase, but hold the phone. We'll be right back to that. But um, that'll be in my conclusion. Um, I do wanna touch on real quick on verses 28 and 29, which close out our passion, our passage tonight um, because that's gonna be um, what we read in the coming lessons. So verse 28 starts like this. When Jesus had finished saying all these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. I think just think that's super cool, right? Because we're gonna be diving in to Jesus's authority as king in the upcoming lesson. So it's a little precursor to what we're gonna be diving into in BSF. So that's gonna lead us uh, finally to our last principle tonight, which is that living a life that glorifies God requires building a foundation on his truth. Living a life that glorifies God requires building a foundation on his truth. So I love that Jesus concludes his sermon. This is when we can talk about verses 24 through 27. Um, Let's briefly actually read those quickly. Um, So starting verse 24, uh, therefore everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against the house, yet it didn't fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell with a great crash. Now, there was some discussion um, in our leadership circle, again, um, to what the storms were. They could be the storms of life, the trials and tribulations that we all face. Um, We also mentioned that it could be actually the judgment, right? The storms could be the very judgment when we're um, before God. Um, Your notes actually touch on that this week, so I would encourage you to read them. But as Jesus is wrapping up his sermon, um, I love that he's just getting back to the basics, right? He's wrapping everything up and saying, it's all about building your foundation. Where is your foundation? Where is your life built on? So we want to live a life, right, that glorifies God. We want to love God others sincerely. We want to care for the poor and the oppressed and the downtrodden. We want to worship God rightly and honestly. These are natural desires, right, for us that have been made right in Christ. But in order to live the life that God is calling us to on the Sermon on the Mount, we need to get back to the basics. We need to get back to our foundation. And what is that? It is Jesus. It is the gospel. And I love that phrase that I've heard um, rehearsing the gospel to us Every day, I love that, right? Remembering the gospel. Remembering like in Ephesians 2 verses 8 through 9 that it is by grace that we have been saved through through faith. And this isn't from ourselves, but it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. It's remembering that Jesus is the one who is faithful to us, not us. It is Jesus who keeps us afloat, right? As Philippians chapter 1 verse 6 says, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is him that is keeping us together. 
And how about this for a foundation? I just, in, in writing this lecture, I thought of Colossians chapter one, which is this amazing chapter that Paul writes to the Colossians. And he's just laying out, talking about Jesus. He's just describing Jesus and all of his amazing attributes. And we think about what our foundation is as believers. That's it. It is Jesus. He is the solid rock. So listen to these verses from Colossians 1, verses 15 through 20. Paul is writing, the sun is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn over all creation. For in him, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been given and created through him and for him. He is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself, all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Whew. <laughs> those are some powerful verses as Paul is describing Jesus. But when you read those, right? When I read those verses and then I think about me and I think about my acts of righteousness and my willpower and my little ego, I'm like, are you kidding me? <laughs> this is Jesus, the firstborn of all creation whom all things are being reconciled to him. Why would I want any other foundation other than him for my life to be built upon? So let's build our lives on Jesus, right? Who is before all things, who has made all things, who has authority over all. So as you study Matthew, as you worship him corporately, as you talk about him, with others in BSF or your family or your friends as you spend time in his presence, quiet time before him, build your life on him. Remember and rehearse the gospel. Turn to him your solid rock and foundation. He'll begin to change your thoughts. And through that, he's going to begin to change your thoughts, your attitudes, your motives. He will equip you to live the life that he is calling you to. And for those of you who are in the room who maybe, if you're honest, wouldn't call yourself a Christian tonight, you would not call yourself a follower of Christ. This relationship with King Jesus is open to you right now. Um, there are no coincidence, coincidences. There are no accidents. There is a reason that all of us are in this room right now listening to these words. God is very purposeful in every detail of our lives. So I would just plead with you, build your life on the cornerstone. Come to him in repentance and faith. Give your life over him tonight to the one who reconciles and makes peace through his shed blood shed on the cross. This foundation is secure and it will not fail us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the Sermon on the Mount. We thank you that you have preserved the words in your gospel that you remind us, Lord, of you as our foundation. Jesus, we are lost without you. And God, we are distracted and tempted to want to build our lives on some other flimsy foundation that doesn't satisfy, that is not secure, and that is blown away in the, in the storms of life. God, I thank you that you are calling us 
to a greater life, a God-glorifying life, that we can come to you, our foundation. We can come to you in prayer. We can come to you in humility and cry out to you. God, I pray that we would do that tonight, Lord, that this week we would be reminded of our strong, solid foundation. And Lord, for those who do not know you, God, I pray that you would work in their heart, that they would come to you in faith and repentance, Lord. God, we thank you for your word. I ask you to keep everybody safe this week as we study your authority in Matthew chapter 8, God. Um, we thank you, Lord, for that you're always with us, that you never leave us and forsake us, that you are with us even as we open your word. It's in all these things that we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you, everyone. Um, have an awesome week. Matthew chapter 8 next Monday. <laughs>